welcome back to another week of Redbeard Radio. I am Alana Dickman. I am your co-host and a partner at Redbeard Ventures. And we also have Drew Austin, another co-host, and he's the founding partner of Redbeard Ventures. This week, I'm super excited about the topic. We have a founder of one of our portfolio companies, Venus Aerospace, and the founder, Sassy Duggleby, who will be joining us. And Venus Aerospace is building hypersonic travel, which enables passengers to transport from LA to Tokyo in just two hours. So it's a really exciting topic. We have done two different syndicates and invested in them and are excited to jump in. But before we dive in, everybody listening, please make sure to like, follow, subscribe, comment, let us know your thoughts. We're here to answer also any questions that you might have. And Redbeard Radio is sponsored by Alto. Alto makes it easy for individuals to invest in alternative assets with their retirement funds through a self-directed IRA so you can access deals on Alto Marketplace, their new platform for accredited investors. So please visit altoira.com forward slash marketplace to learn more. All right, Drew, let's jump in. How are you doing? I'm super excited about this topic. We were just talking about them too right before this podcast and just excited to learn more and jump in. Yeah, this is a this is a great one for us. We you know, we've luckily we've been um we've actually done a few different space tech deals um and like, you know, as part of our thesis uh at Redbeard Ventures, you know, we're always looking at, you know, technology and and startups that are at the cutting edge that are innovating, that are building, that are kind of really kind of expanding into new frontiers and space tech is obviously doing that in its most literal fashion. But, you know, what's really cool is that space tech is a pretty broad sector. There are actually a lot of various, there are a lot of different types of opportunities to invest in across the, the space tech spectrum. And I'm, I'm excited to dig into that today um, because, you know, obviously it's the people that are at the ground and building inside of an ecosystem that are by far the most knowledgeable and informed. But, I, you know, I was also, you know, as, as I was looking at, you know, getting prepared for this meeting, you know, I was looking at there's, there's actually been quite a few major exits in the space tech space that I was that I was reading about a few of them like Skybox Imaging, which was acquired by Google, and I think it was about 2014 for about $500 million. Um, they were Skybox, they were renamed Terabella. Um, and specialized in in small and high resolution imaging satellites. A lot of actually some of the most the, the most well known business opportunities in this space usually have to do with satellite technology, at least from what I've seen. Um, but and I know you were you actually invested in SpaceX early, didn't you? Or was that it was my, my first like, startup investment? Yeah. How did you get into that one? Uh, through a different syndicate before I was at Redbeard. Sadly, was investing in other syndicates not Redbeard related, but. I think something cool about what we do at Redbeard too is like we do have the syndicate and the funds. Like most people originally know us through the syndicate, a lot of like Web3 crypto, that's our fund. But allowing us to do the syndicate is super exciting. And I think one of my favorite parts about Redbeard because we are able to do these alternative investments and these frontier tech investments. Like I was looking at our portfolio before this call, like apart from we recently did SpaceX, Anderol, like we've also done some like really exciting, we've done Rocket Place, which was a co syndicate that we did in the space. We've obviously done Venus Aerospace and run two different syndicates for them. We've done like a ton of deals specifically in this sector, especially co-syndicates as well. So I think something that I really like about the space is it could like change our future. Like when I think about this next generation of travel, it's not only to help us as a consumer who's flying, but it's also the military, which is helping a lot. And it's other parts of the world that I think travel is going to really be effective. So 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll just, I want to, I'm also just kind of looking at some of the exits more because I think it's also important to understand the business opportunity. I think when we talk with angel investors, I think a lot of them, a lot of them look at space um, tech and space investment opportunities as such like a, it's such like a, a, almost like so out of reach. It's such a long-term investment opportunity. But, you know, when you see like some of the exits that have happened, I know Planetary Recess, uh, Resources, which does uh, mining of asteroids, um, was actually acquired by Consensus Blockchain Company in 2018. Um, Orbital Sciences, North Group, uh, Northrop Groupman acquired Orbital in nine for 9.2 billion. They do manufacturing of satellites and launch vehicles. Uh, Blue Canyon Technologies was acquired by Raytheon. Uh, Momentus, which was um, did a SPAC actually back in 2021, um, which was a new, which is you know actually became a a new liquidity path for space startups. Uh, Rocket Lab, Deep Space Industries. So there was a variety of exits, and it does show a path to um, to these companies finding liquidity for their investors, which of course is a big deal for these angel investors that are investing in these opportunities. You know, for me, I, I look at it as a few things. I look at, I, I think there's obviously high growth potential. Um, there's, you know, large opportunities for return on investment, obviously in areas like satellite internet, space tourism, you know, travel, exploration. Um, these are, they're doing really advanced technological innovations. So there's a lot of cutting edge technology from, you know, that, that covers that, like, that really runs the gamut that incorporates telecommunications and material science and all different types. There's, there's so many different areas, um, that are really touching and making these, uh, these, these space tech businesses, um, thrive and be successful. I mean, obviously nowadays we're getting, you know, the global connectivity and data services, uh, there's and, and the other thing that I find really interesting is how it's it's the for most of the startups that we've spoken to, and I'm sure we'll we'll get some information on this as well from Sassy, but like a lot of the early stage business opportunities really come from military and space contracts, which I always find fascinating. Well, a lot of it's government contracts because they're not spending the money themselves, so they have That's to right. outsource a lot of the technology, which is like. It makes sense. I mean, yeah, we will talk about Venus Aerospace because they have one themselves, but a lot of them aren't spending the money internally and and they can't catch up to the technology that these private companies are doing. So you're seeing these startups get these huge contracts through the government. Like you're seeing SpaceX just had one, Android just had one, Venus Aerospace, like you're seeing these huge contracts and it makes sense. I mean, they're so behind right now that they just can't catch up without either acquiring, having these huge grants or having these huge contracts. Yeah, and it's also it's oftentimes, especially in the grant format, that's non-dilutive capital for a lot of these businesses. So, from an investor perspective, those are really big opportunities to land. Whether it's either grants that are non-dilutive or you know substantial long-term revenue contracts, you know, in these early stage startups, they need those types of opportunities to get you know through those early days when the business is still being created because it takes a lot of capital to get these businesses that are doing such interesting things. Um, and such hard and, and solving such hard technical problems, uh, to, you know, over that early stage hump. Um, you know, we say it's funny in the software world. You know, a lot of it, it, you know in the software world, what we see is it's becoming more and more cost efficient to be able to create software startups. You know, with AI and cloud-based services and um, and and leveraging open source technology. But when you're dealing with some of the innovation that's happening in space tech and hardware and software, you know, you're you're unfortunately you're not able always to stand on the the shoulders of giants like you can in software. A lot of it needs to be you know proprietary, created technology that's invented. 
from the ground up. So, you know, that's always going to be more expensive. There's always going to be an R&D budget where in startups, their R&D budget is usually the thing that they put out and start to learn from customers. So there's a, you know, there's a material difference in that type of innovation situation. Um, a couple of the things I just want to, you know, I wanted to touch on before we bring up SASE is also just, again, a little bit more of an understanding of some of the different types of sectors that we're looking at across the space technology spectrum. You know, obviously, as I mentioned, there was the, the satellite technology. So that's, you know, deployment and development of, of satellites and whether it's CubeSats or nanosatellites, um, traditional large satellites, they're focusing on whether it's earth observation, telecommunications, data gathering. Um, obviously, launch services are really another another one with re reusable te rocket technology is now like the hot area because um, it's like significantly significantly reducing cost to access space. Um, one that I find to be really interesting is that the space exploration, tourism, you know, that's an opportunity that people have been talking about for a while. It seems like it's becoming more and more um, closer to like a, a practical reality. Uh, and I, I'm curious to see, um, I'm curious to learn more about what are the opportunities there and how do we think that's going to attract um, consumers? You know, I think you know, for what it's worth, it's funny when I talk about with my wife about like, hey, would you go to space? Would you love to explore space? You know, one of the first things that come up these days, and this is this is what happens in these types of industries, uh, you know, it's is the is the is the situation that happened with the um, the deep sea uh, submarine uh, uh, crash explosion. Yeah, it's like, insane. hey, that's <laughs> She's like, why would I take those risks to go to you know deep sea or space? Like, you know, the, it's such an unproven territory. It's so so dangerous. You know, situations like that are you know unfortunately I think bad for you know those are like and that was a company that I think you know was really not equipped to make that that move. I mean, oh, for that. sure, yeah. <laughs> but you know, unfortunately, they put a they put a bad mark on some of the, on space on opportunities like you know these big innovation exploration uh so sectors. would you do it drew if you were given a free ticket right now would you go <sighs> totally i would not i would not be first i probably wouldn't be the first 50 or 100 but i would definitely go i would love to i want to uh, say i'd go too but i hate roller coasters and so like if i can't even get on a roller coaster without crying i'm like i don't know how i'd be able to go didn't, space didn't you, jump, didn't you jump out of a plane I did. I've done skydiving and bungee jumping, but that was like, it was within like 48 hours. If I actually had to go to space and deal with the gravity, I don't know if I could do, I really want to say yes, but yep. I don't know. Um, and I, yeah. And I'll, and I'll mention a few others in you know, man, space manufacturing. I think that's also really interesting. Some of the resources that can be um, extracted from, from, uh, you know, from space to be able to, there's a, I mean, there's been a lot of really interesting business opportunities on that side of things. Um, and, you know, again, just, you know, communication networks, um, you know, the analytics and geospatial sensing and analytics. So there's a, a lot of really interesting opportunity. Um, this is an area where we're just continuing to learn and consume information. And, and, you know, luckily we have some great venture partners that are really tapped into these area to these networks. So they're able to bring opportunities to, to us, to look at and see if it makes sense as an opportunity to bring to our syndicate. Um, but yeah, let, let, I, I'm excited to dig in with Sassy. Yeah, let's bring Sassy up on stage. Hello, how's it going? Hello, I'm great. How are you guys? We are good. Super excited to have you on. Yeah, yeah we're doing great. Where are, you call, where, are you, where are you calling in from today? I'm in Houston, Texas. Okay, okay. Awesome. So where are you, what's the setup you guys have in Houston? Yeah, so we are actually at the Houston Spaceport, 
um, which is Ellington Field. Ellington Field is, it's been an airport here in Houston since I think like the 1915, like don't quote me on that exactly, but it's been here a long time. That's why it's called a field. It was like pre-World War II. Wow. Um, and so it's actually NASA's airport. So we're two, like two or three hangers down from NASA where the astronauts fly the T-38s. Wow. Um, those guys fly all the time outside. And, you know, it's one of the great things, one of the reasons we moved to Houston is um, because it's the spaceport, we can literally fire rocket engines you know, here in the city center. And so I'm pointing this way, if you're watching me on the screen, it's because like our, we have the empty lot next door to us and that's where our rocket engine test stand is. That's so that's we're firing rocket engines in the middle of Houston. Um, on a daily <laughs> basis. I actually just heard a pretty loud noise and was like, oh, there goes another engine test. Wow. Yeah, and then we're going to have to make the trip out there because that seems super cool to see. Um, I just yeah. want to start off for people who are just listening right now. Could you give a little bit of background about yourself and then obviously Venus Aerospace as well? Sure. Um, so, yeah, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Venus Aerospace. Um, I actually founded the company with my husband. Um, he's the PhD rocket scientist and I'm, I'm an engineering undergrad and an MBA. So I tend to do more of the business things. Um, but prior to starting Venus, we were actually working for Virgin Orbit. And so we were, you know, launching rockets off the wings of 747s and sending them to space. Um, and then um, even prior to that, Andrew was still in the Navy reserves. And so the whole idea for Venus came because in 2018, uh, we got deployed to Japan and we were living in Japan and kind of realized, how big the world is and that, you know, with some new technology coming down the pipeline, we might be able to connect it in one hour. Um, and so that's, that's ultimately what we're doing. We're, we are commercializing a next generation rocket engine. Um, it's called the rotating detonation rocket engine um, that enables um, high speed global travel. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So, so tell us about, so when did the company start and like talk yeah. tell us about the journey and, you know, kind of the phases of development. Sure. Um, yeah, so we uh, quit our jobs in June 2020 when we were working at Virgin Orbit. That was right after we got Virgin to its very first launch. Um, and that was to chase this crazy dream. You know, it was, it was the middle of COVID. Um, we have two daughters and our kids were home from school because because of COVID. And there are days I look back and I'm thinking, we were a little crazy. Like we had two great jobs working at Virgin Orbit, building super cool technology and decided to kind of go go jump off this cliff and see what would happen if we could do a startup. At least you guys jumped um, off together, you know? It wasn't just one of you. Like, you guys went full force into this. Probably. Exactly. We And honestly, we had about nine months of savings in our bank account. And we said, okay, we have nine months to try to go raise this round. And if we can't raise a seed round, then we'll go back and get jobs. Like, we, we have great resumes. And it was kind of this, we've got to go try. Um, and so, yeah, so we... Um, Started fundraising in June 2020. It took us about six months to close our seed round of funding, and we let uh, we closed a three million dollar seed round um, that was led by Prime Movers Lab in uh, January of 2021. Mm -hmm. So we've really been at this. What is that? Almost three three years full time with funding. And when, um, and when you went when you went out for that seed round, like what was what did you guys have in place at that point when you were just coming to investors for the first time and saying, "Here's my vision." Yeah, we were two people in a PowerPoint presentation. I mean, it was, I look back and think, oh my gosh, yeah. Because, you know, so the idea, it's it's a brand new type of rocket engine. It's been theorized for about 30 years. Um, and it was finally proven at an academic level in October, 2019. Um, and so Andrew, as he had been a professor at Texas A&M, and then he was head of propulsion R&D for Virgin Orbit, had kind of been rock watching this engine. 
Um, and he, he said, you know, this engine, if it's ever proven, I think changes everything. And so when it was finally proven, he came home and said, hey, you know, it was actually Purdue University, Zucro Labs, Dr. Heaster showed and put out a paper showing in an academic test that this new engine put out more thrust than the regular rocket engines that we've been using for, you know, the last 50 years. Um, so that was really the moment that we said, okay, you know, Andrew came home from work and said, hey, the engine was proven. And I said, did you have this? And he said, yeah. And so I went and figured out how do you commercial, how do you incorporate a company? How do you how do you raise venture capital? I kind of started down that journey. Um, and so when we we put in our resignation, having an idea, but we had not worked on it at all because we wanted to make sure we kept things really clean. Um, and so, yeah, quit our jobs June 2020 with the thought that something was there um, and then just really started digging in and, you know, created our pitch deck. Um, and I had had some coaching from a few from a group of women, actually, that their whole goal was to get more funding in the hands of female founders. Um, and so thank, I'm super thankful for those women that were kind of coaching me and helped helped us kind of walk through the process. Um, and then we just started fundraising. And I mean, it took pitch after pitch after pitch, especially I mean, you were talking earlier about software. I mean, we're a deep tech, yeah. hardware, hardware rich, longer timeline. I mean, we've got a little bit crazy, maybe. <laughs> and so we're not the standard, the standard VCs look at our idea and say, oh, your time horizons are too long. Um, you know, it's frontier tech. That's not where we invest. I'm used to investing in software, consumer goods. And so it it actually took us a long time to find out the type of investors that would invest in, you know, this type of idea. Mm -hmm. um, and then- Redbeards of the world. <laughs> the redbeards of the world, exactly. It's been three years now since kind of that 2020, now we're 2023, almost 2024. So what's happened since then? And then also you mentioned it's a longer time horizon. So what is your time horizon for Venus? Yeah. Um, so we'll start with what's happened since then. So we closed our seed round and then we, we, we brought in quite a bit more money between like a post-seed safe and then a series A, we got a preemptive A that was led by Prime Movers Lab. They actually came to us and said, you guys are crushing it. Here's a here's a preemptive A. Um, and then we just, we've been working on, we just closed an A2. Um, and so we've raised, I think, close to $60 million um, so far in terms, and we've, you know, moved the company from Long Beach to Houston. And, you know, we've been here in Houston and we're, you know, literally firing rocket engines outside our hangar doors I was talking about. You know, trying to get this engine ready to be commercialized. Um, and then we've also been pushing forward drone technology. Um, and so, you know, our goal is to start off with high speed drones on the way to our ultimate vision, which is, you know, commercial airliners. And so we've been kind of dual pathing drone plus plus engine with the goal to integrate it and have, you know, our first market would really be hypersonic testing for the Department of Defense. You know, right now, if you want to get hypersonic data, you can get into a wind tunnel and there's a two to three year wait and you get like 0.2 seconds of data. Um, or you can put it on like a rocket or sounding rocket. There's a couple other groups that are chasing that, um, but they're not reusable. They're not, you know, you don't get the data back. And so, you know, really our first goal is to have a hypersonic drone that, that can get flight test data while we learn and then move into kind of multi-mission drones for the Department of Defense um, on the way to you know, that commercial vision. And there's, and you... sorry, Drew, I just have so many questions yeah. about this. I'm just yeah. going to take one more and then go to you. But oh, there's oh, oh, oh. supersonic travel, then there's hypersonic. And hypersonic is actually quicker than supersonic, but they're both faster than the speed of sound. So like, what made you guys focus on hypersonic as opposed to supersonic, which has been done before um, and actually proved out? Yep. 
it really all comes down to the engine. And so because we're using a rocket engine, it just means we can fly higher and cooler than, you know, than what a jet engine would be able to fly. And that allows us to get to higher speeds. Does that make sense? So I actually joke that Top Gun Maverick has been the best marketing story ever for Venus, because what happens, you know, sorry to ruin it for any of you listeners, close your ears if you haven't seen this, you know, shame, shame on you. Um, you know, but what happens in the opening scene as Tom Cruise tries to push his um, plane to Mach 10, you know, he, he melts his vehicle. And so if, if you're going to be a jet engine or fast flying jet, you've got to fly low enough in the atmosphere to get oxygen for your engine. And that means you're flying through soup and it's an incredible amount of friction on your vehicle, but we're a rocket. So, you know, what's the difference in a rocket and a jet, a rocket carries its own oxidizer with it. Um, and so because we're carrying our own oxygen, that means we can go way higher where we're, there's not as much friction um, and thus our vehicle is cooler and we can also fly faster. Um, and so that, that's why we're focusing on hypersonics is because at the end of the day, that's, that's what our engine truly enables. Gotcha. Gotcha. So can we talk about like the milestones or like exciting moments that have happened in the, in the, the three years that you said, oh, wow, this is like, this is one of those major progress moments that we got to share. And this is, shows more because like in this space, you in this space, literally, you can actually, you know, you can actually go quite a period of time where it's like, is this, are we going to be able to pull anything off here? Are we going to be able to do this? Are we going to be able to accomplish this? So what were those moments and milestones that you guys were you know most proud of or most excited about throughout the journey of the business so far? Yeah. So, you know, I think the the first one that was most exciting was when we got our own test stand working. So the original funding that we got was to do some testing at the university labs and use their test stands. Um, but we knew that we could not be dependent upon a university schedule to build this world changing technology. Um, and so when we when we got the first, you know, test of our first rocket engine working you know, here in Houston, I mean, that was a huge celebration. Um, and then probably the next biggest win, I would say, was so we now have the engine working with um, jet fuel and liquid hydrogen peroxide. Um, so those are room temperature storable propellants. And so why does that matter? Because if we're trying to go airport to airport, which is our goal, you know, you, you don't want to use cryogenic fuels because what's the challenge with cryogenics? You know, they're really cold. If you're sitting on a runway and you sit too long because there's a storm, or there's some reason you can't take off and you boil off all your fuel, then you've got to go reload. Um, and so, you know, another huge win was when we got the engine working just with you know, jet fuel, which we buy from our FBO here on here at the airfield um, and then liquid hydrogen peroxide because that's a room temperature um, oxidizer. Um, the other wins is we've been flying drones. And so, you know, the first drone that we flew crashed and we actually celebrated big time. One of our philosophies is build a little, test a little, learn a lot you know, do those quick iterations. And so, you know, we crashed the first one and had a huge celebration and then went and fixed it. And not a couple weeks later, had the second one already flying and in the air. And um, when that one landed, I mean, it was, we, it was hugely exciting. Um, and then just, you know, so we continue to push forward engine success and vehicle success. And um, it's, you know, it's the adventure of a lifetime. I, I daily wake up and think, I cannot believe we're doing this. That's amazing. So, yeah. and in terms of like the business use cases and applications, um, can you talk a little bit about each, like for both the, both the drone and the jet engines and how you think about near term versus longer term, you know, kind of business paths? Yeah. Um, you know, so really near term, the opportunity is hypersonic testing. 
um, you know, sensors, cameras, materials, um, you know, for mostly for the Department of Defense or, or providers or suppliers to the DOD. Um, and that allows us to burn, continue to burn down risk on our vehicle while, hope, you know, hopefully providing a service for, for the U.S. armed services. Um, you know, and then next step up would be a, a more, more multi-scale drone, whether it's doing missions for the DOD or, you know, it could be doing hyper logistics. I mean, what if you needed to deliver a part to the other side of the world in an hour? I mean, all of a sudden this drone could get you, th- get you places, you know, so high, high speed deliveries would be incredible. And then, you know, on the way again to that, that commercial, um, you know, how does, how does the world change if you can get anywhere in an hour? I mean, that, that's still our long-term goal. So like thinking about a drone going from like one side of the world to another, like there must be so many, so much regulation happening with the FAA. So could you discuss a little bit about that and how that relates to hypersonic travel and what you guys are building? Yeah, no. Um, so this year it's been actually interesting. We've been doing quite a bit of lobbying because it is the um, FAA reauthorization is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we worked with um, a group to help get some language into the FAA kind of talking about that hypersonics is coming. And so, you know, we need the U.S. to start looking at how do we maintain leadership in this new technology, both on how do you integrate hypersonic vehicles into the airspace what range access? I mean, one of our biggest challenges has been regulatory of you can't fly supersonic overland in the United States, um, but you also can't fly experimental vehicles outside of uh, U.S. airspace. And so where do we go fly? You know, where do we go test our drone? Where do we go test our vehicles? Um, and so kind of been working with both the FAA and trying to work with Congress and work with different groups to help, you know, kind of reduce some of that friction. Um, so that's actually, you know, that you, you face something that a lot of tech companies are facing in general, which is we're advancing so fast in technology and the existing rules and regulations aren't equipped to actually support some of the new technology. So like, what is the reaction or support or, you know, how, how what's the response you're seeing from, from the government in embracing some of the things that you're saying, that you're kind of bringing to them? You know, the, everybody's supportive and excited, but it's still a giant flywheel that moves so slow, right? You know, I mean, the FAA reauthorization bill is every five years. So if we didn't get language in this time, you know, it's going to be 2028 before you know, there's any hypersonic language. Um, and so I, it's definitely been challenging. Um, you know, I've, I have, I joke, I've learned more in the last three years than I've learned in the previous 40 of my life. I mean, just from fundraising to, you know, organizational structure and motivation to how the president's budget works and continue resolutions and lobbying and the NDAA. I mean, it's the, the amount of things that you have to know and be kind of following is, is fascinating. And so, you know, on a congressional level and government level, people are really excited, but it's still things move at a, at a snail's pace compared to how venture moves, you know? So in the time we've raised all of this venture capital, you know, we, if we've raised, you know, 40 million in venture capital, we've gotten like 4 million in government grants. And so yeah. there's just, there's a misalignment of like, you're telling me this is the top priority for the Department of Defense or one of the top 14 priorities for the United States. Yet, you know, we're getting tiny little checks right now. And and we're working hard. I mean, we've got folks in DC right now, you know, working with different groups to try to try to tell our story and get that pull. But um, it's, there's also a lot of other primes. I mean, I, we've been told by someone high up, like, you know, off the record, it's like, all right, if I have to go pick a prime that doesn't not quite have the technology, but they might be able to do it versus a startup, I'm going to pick a prime every day because I don't get fired for picking a prime. Yeah, if a startup course. fails, 
you know, so, you know, it's also some misaligned incentives at the very top. Yeah, because it makes sense. Like you guys are even doing it right now. But even if you could have it and make it work, will it actually like will government enable you to fly them? I mean, SR-71 and the Concorde, I've seen both, obviously, the Concorde being this commercial plane. But this was like in the 19, late 1900s, that like up to 2003, where people could ride this up until the FAA coming out and being like, sorry, but you can't fly this over land because of noise and like the impact of humans and animals. So I guess like, does that concern you at all that like, even if you have this working product that you're able to test in Texas, will you actually be able to go and actually get the approval to fly it? I mean, that's why we're constantly pushing on all sorts of different doors and, you know, talking with different folks that have authority to help us get through that. Um, yeah. But the, regu the regulatory hurdles are huge. Mm -hmm. um, and, but if, you know, if the United States wants to continue to stay at the forefront of aviation innovation, which, you know, we've been the leaders for so long, mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's there's ways we're going to have to step in. And, you know, and, and I think our administration, everybody wants that, but then they kind of get in their way at times. It's it's uh, it's fascinating. Yeah. Can, can you talk a little bit about what it what uh, what what getting a government contract like what goes into the government like people talk about you know we hear in when when I when I talk to space tech companies or defense tech companies you know a lot you know most of their early business adoption and early revenue is coming from these government contracts can you talk a little bit about what that what goes into the process and how do those how do those deals get structured yeah it, there's quite a few different ways you can go about it. Um, so a lot of times the earliest way to get into some government contracting is what's called SIBRs or SBIRs. It's small business innovative research contracts. Um, and there are a lot of different organizations across the government that offer SIBRs. Um, you know, so we happen to have one from AFWorks, which is the Air Forces group. You know, there's DOE does them, NIH does them. There's a lot of different groups. You know, it's kind of the early stage innovative research um, and they have three phases. So there's like a phase one that's usually, I don't know, 50 to $75,000. Uh, and then there's a phase two that can be up to 1.2 to $1.5 million. And it probably depends on the organization. Different groups have different kind of tranche amounts. Um, and then you can get what's called a phase three or a strategic funding increase that can be up to like $30 million, um, as long as you've got matching money from VCs. Um, so there's, so a lot of that, I mean, there's a lot of groups out there that kind of help help startups write SIVRs or write those types of grants. Um, and it takes a lot of work. I mean, it's a lot of energy to kind of dot the I's and cross the T's and make sure you have all the structures. And, um, you know, so there's there's also other um, contract methods called OTAs. I think it's an other transactional authority. Um, that's just a little bit different process, but it's a way to get on contract with different government groups. Um, and so it, it really, like I hate to say it kind of depends, but SIVRs yeah. tend to be the way that most startups that I know, I know of, and that we've gotten have been the first way kind of entry point into government funding. Gotcha. Gotcha. And are there, are there other, like for other startups in the space, are there, who would you say outside of the government, where do you see them getting early revenue opportunities? Um, you know, it, I think it depends on like, you know, we're in aerospace and defense. I, you know, it, I, I think it's going to depend. Like if you're talking about a satellite company, it's going to be very, very different than talking about, you know, Venus as a, um, you know, hypersonic company. Mm -hmm. um, so I, like, I, are, I are, the, I could... are the large, like, I guess when, when I'm thinking about this, like, are the larger airline businesses, are they interested in this type of innovation? So they're staying cutting edge. Like, you know, are, are, are those prospective 
whether it's customers, investors, like strategic relationships, because these are big businesses, obviously, that have lots of capital and need to stay ahead of the curve. I would imagine, you know, they could be prospects. I mean, is that is that something? Oh, absolutely. That, yeah. 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 So we've had we've had some early conversations, you know, some of it you know, really on Venus's end, it's been like, make sure we have the engine because the engine's the key. And, you know, the last three years have really been building to make sure we have that. And now that we have it, we've really started kind of moving towards, you know, kind of the next strategy of, you know, where do we go? Who are our customers? You know, so in this last round of funding, Airbus Ventures um, invested in the round. Um, And so that's been incredible because, you know, they invested and announced it right before the Paris Air Show. And so then when we went to the Paris Air Show, they opened up their portfolio. It said, you know, who do you want to talk to? And got us meetings with all sorts of different groups. Yeah, I always, so, found, I always found corporate strategics. They're a little intimidating for founders in the early days as a, as a, to, to take them on as investors. But I always found them to be super, super beneficial. Like in two of my previous companies, I had UPS Ventures, Siemens Venture Capital, Simon Malls, like they all opened up. Now, every corporate venture arm is different. They're all going to provide different value and different benefits. But you know, I remember, at the, for example, UPS Ventures, we were using like UP, a UPS warehouse as like our pilot environment to do testing on some of the wearable technology applications we were building. So, you know, those corporate strategics, instead of having to go through an entire customer process, you know, and sales process to try to get a space to do a pilot in a real in a real working environment to have a strategic investor where you know you're relatively aligned on your interests and um, and what you're both looking for out of this. It's super. It really accelerates potential opportunities for progress. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> So, sorry, one other question. Are there other corporate strategics that are in that are active in the, the space technology area that you come across? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's Lockheed Martin Ventures, there's Raytheon Ventures. A lot of those groups all have their own fund. You know, I think Boeing has Horizon X, you know, and then there's like United Airlines has a venture group. Alaska Airlines has a venture group. There's there's a, a lot of groups playing kind of in that innovation space because I think they recognize that, you know, you can't always innovate, you know, at the big, large corporate um, groups, but you know, there's a lot of innovation happening in the startup ecosystem, and so um, if those groups want to have kind of a feel for what's happening, you know, the easiest way for the for them, I think, to do it is to have that kind of venture arm that's out talking to a lot of the different um, companies that are out there. I wanted to jump into the competitive landscape a little bit because I know there are a couple other companies that are building specifically in the hypersonic travel. So could you talk a little bit about your differentiating factors? And then also, I think that goes hand in hand with your RDRE technology and how that correlates to hypersonic travel. Yeah, so the you know really the difference is we are using that the RDRE engine, the rotating detonation rocket engine, which is a totally different take on high speed travel than what, you know, anybody that we would consider a competitor would be, mm-hmm. um, you know, Hermes is probably the clo- other United States based company that's building um, reusable hypersonic vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say we're cheering them on. I mean, it's a different ecosystem. We're building a totally different type of tech. Um, totally. And so I think there's room in the environment for all sorts of different types of technology. Um, you know, there's a couple other companies, a company out of um, Switzerland called Destinus. That's also working on a similar hypersonic reusable vehicle. Um, you know, I think I think Hermes, Destinus, and us are probably the three three groups. There's a group called Hypersonics out of Australia. There's a lot of folks working on it. And you know, at the end of the day, I I don't know. I believe kind of a rising tide lifts all rising With tide lifts all boats. Mm-hmm. And especially, especially in sectors that need you know demonstrations of adoption and regulation progress. I mean, the more people you have working on the same team, the better. As I see it in the early days. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think, you know, and the more people that are doing really hard things, right? I mean, it, like we call this a good hard quest. You know, we are working on something that's good for the world, that's really hard, that at the end of the day, you know, I am super glad to get up every morning to come and work on it. You know, and I, I think Silicon Valley has gotten away from building good hard quests. And I think sometimes they're, you know, it's easy to go build an app that gets more ad, you know, more ad space and gets more money that way. But like at the end of the day, like I, I sleep well at night knowing I'm working on technology that, you know, ultimately creates a more peaceful, prosperous world. Um, and, and that's really our ultimate vision, again, is, you know, how does the world change if you can get anywhere in an hour or you can get home for dinner? You know, that, that's our real vision. We want, if, we want to get you across the world, you know, fly across the world and have you home for dinner. And then if you work for us, we want you home for dinner. And, and that's, that's incredible. I mean, is that, is that dream? Like, what do you, do you have a timeline in your head that you keep to that you're like, that's like the, the time period I want to see this dream become a reality? Yeah. You know, we've always said in the next, you know, it would take about a decade. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're still pushing towards that. I don't, you know, once we have the engine, then it's integration, but the integration, you know, we, we come from the world where we integrate high-speed engines into vehicles. And you know, I think it took us seven years to go from the idea to Virgin Orbit flying. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't think it's unrealistic for that to still be our dream. Now it's going to take the right amount of capital and it's going to take the right amount of, you know, we're still pushing a lot of government funding and that non-dilutive capital, as you were talking about earlier. I mean, that's the best kind of capital. Totally. Um, but I was looking, researching some about hypersonic travel and like it's faster than 3,836 miles per hour. Like you're seeing these rockets that you're building. Like what will that feel like if in 10 years we're able to fly from LA to Tokyo in two hours? Like what will it feel like to actually be on that plane and be on that commercial flight? Yeah. Um, you know, so us, it's takeoff from an airport with jet engines, mm -hmm. just like normal. And then you get out over the ocean and then you're going to turn on our rocket booster. Um, and it's about a 10 minute boost, about 0.3 Gs. So when you take off from an airplane, that's about 0.3 Gs of force. And so it would be about 10 minutes of that. And at that point, you kind of become a glider. You turn off all engines and just glide and slowly decelerate as you go across the globe. Um, so it's called a boost glide system. Um, and it shouldn't feel, I mean, you don't have to be an astronaut. Your eyes aren't going to be bugging out of the back of your head. Mm -hmm. um, it should feel normal. We've actually had, you know, one of the joys of being here in Houston is the NASA Johnson Space Center is literally down the road from us. Um, and so we had the NASA Human Factors team run our trajectory and they came back and said, oh, it's no big deal. You know, the average human being can handle that without issues. Um, so the only place, I mean, the, the coolest thing I think is going to be that you'll be able to see the curvature of the earth. You'll be able to see the stars, you Amazing. know, those, the astronauts that I'm friends with here in Houston, you know, you hear them talk about that aha moment when they, you know, really see the earth um, and just how, how precious that makes them realize it is. Um, and so, you know, our passengers should be able to have that same type of aha moment just because of the altitude at which we're flying. And what do you think about the economics? Like, will this be economical? Like how much exponentially higher will it be to cost to, to fly in a, a plane like this versus, you know, traditional travel? Yeah, our, our goal is for it to not be, you know, substantially more expensive than, you know, kind of first class ticket prices. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the question is, if you can get there in an hour versus 13 hours, what's that price worth? Totally. Um, you know, and our goal also is to be, you know, kind of more the Bo Boeing, Airbus, Gulfstream type model where we then sell it to an operator um, as opposed to us actually operating the vehicles. So at the end of the day, we would sell the vehicle to someone and then they would be in charge of ticket sales and pricing. And so, you know, in some ways it's going to be their decision. They buy a vehicle from us and then they get to, 
you know, determine what the pricing is, but um, it shouldn't be based on, you know, cost vehicle cost and sizing and, um, you know, fuel cost. It shouldn't be, you know, that much, that, that different. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now let's uh, if you take a step back, just a way, uh, uh, you know, out looking at the, the sector at large, if you were an investor in this category, you know, what would be some of the opportunities you'd be excited about, you know, outside of your own business, of course, but like just what, you know, you're so close to the space. What are the types of, you know, areas within space tech that you'd be really excited to, to support, to invest, to participate where you think there's big opportunity for growth? Yeah. I mean, I think space tech as a whole, we are just at the very beginning of, you know, it's a whole new frontier. Um, I've heard the analogy of kind of like, it's almost like space tobacco. Like, you know, when, when the new world was colonized, you know, like the U.S., what actually opened up colonization was the cash crop of tobacco. And suddenly, you know, we were able to really start growing, growing the U.S. economy. Um, and I think we're at that very beginning stages with what's really going to happen in space. Um, so between satellites and, you know, asteroid mining and inter-solar, like solar system, like you know, solar power systems. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's just, we are so much at the very, very earliest stages of what's going to happen in the ecosystem mm-hmm. of space um, that what, it what do you think? extremely excited. Oh, me too. What do you think of asteroid mining? Like, I think that's such an interesting kind of a concept that we're like, not only do we, you know, not only do we know of existing, not only could there be existing minerals and things that are, that are beneficial that we know what their capabilities are, but we could discover entire new ones, which is really interesting in itself. Yeah. Well, if you look at, I mean, the rare earth minerals and some of the challenges that are coming, you know, here on earth because of the, you know, the challenges with extracting those minerals, I think, you know, there's asteroids that probably are full of, of different minerals that could, um, could help benefit us. I mean, I, th- I think I've heard one, one asteroid has like a trillion dollars worth of platinum or something. I read that, too. I read that um, also. You know, so, you know, there's just incredible opportunities that, you know, that technology is coming. I mean, the, the ability to, you know, as, as launch costs get cheaper and cheaper, um, you know, it, it just enables us to do more and more things in space, whether it's manufacturing or mining or whatever. I mean, at, at some point, I think, you know, the, the moon as a, it takes as much energy for us to get from the earth to the moon as it does to get from the moon to the rest of the solar system. Um, so, you know, using that moon as kind of that, the gas station of the future to then continue exploring the edges of our solar system. I mean, there's, there's so many possibilities that it's, I can only imagine what my kids and my grandchildren are going to be able to see. You Unbelievable! Know, I, I grew up. I grew up watching the Jetsons and thought that would be our future. Um, and maybe, I mean, here we are on a Zoom. That that's part of what the Jetsons Jetsons showed as the future. But I think there's so much more coming, um, which is really fun. Yeah. No. No. I completely agree. And I, I guess I would also ask, like, what do you think about, like, for example, if like you know Elon Musk and SpaceX's vision of like colonizing Mars? Like, what are your thoughts there? Like, do you think that's a uh, uh, a beneficial practical vision? Do you think that's like something to shoot for? What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I give Elon Musk all the credit for really showing the world that hard tech, space tech, new types of technology can be done and can be profitable. Yep. Um, you know, you know, between Elon and, you know, the Virgin Orbit and the Blue Origins, I mean, they've just been able to show that, like, you can go do hard things. You know, I personally have zero interest in going and living on Mars, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I'm glad, you know, showing that we can go do hard things as a society and push technology forward. Um, you know, it's, I think we, as the United States and really as a society, we have kind of stopped that development, right? Like we landed on the moon 50 years ago and haven't done anything since. Yeah, no. So I, I, letting I, I, the I, private I, world go chase that, like, 
you know, no, hallelujah. I, agree. <laughs> and, and I completely agree on it. But I think also part of what you're saying there is correct. Like the fact that he could turn that into phased business a bit to show true business opportunity along the way is actually one of the hardest things that companies face trying to do big things is the, is the ability to be able to stay towards a mission while accomplishing milestones along the way that are real business applications and real profitable opportunities. Like you're saying with the drones, I think that's a really, you know, that, that probably wasn't the day one idea was the drone component, but it, it like at some point you realized, hey, this can be a near term profitable solution that continues us on our journey. Like, is that is that how you kind of came to that whole? Absolutely. I mean, if if we had been pitching you three years ago with our initial st- initial talk, it was literally, how does the world change if you can get anywhere in an hour? Yeah. Um, it was commercial travel. And then as we started to talk to folks about that, you know, more and more people would be like, you know, and we were always going to use a drone to go learn on because that's how you can buy down risk. If a drone crashes, there's, you know, oh, well, yeah, it's the cost of the hardware, but, you know, there's there's no humans on board. Right. And so we always knew we were going to use a drone as our testing platform. But when we realized, oh, there's an incredible opportunity um, with this to go capture very early revenue. Um, to allow us to continue push the technology forward, it just made it, it it made the story easier. And even as we've you know fundraised over the last three years, like our story is very different because it's not just the pie in the sky. How do you go change the world? It's like no, there are very near near term revenue opportunities that we can use this engine for, that we can use high speed vehicles for, um, that allow us to start like to start getting revenue and to start being a real business. Um, that, that we can then use to leverage for the ver- the next opportunities as we continue to grow. Yeah, that, that makes so many so much sense. And are there any scalability limitations like when it, when it comes to the the engine and the like? Are there any like specific constraints around how to how this can scale? You know, that's a good question. I I think I think we can add them as mul- not. I think we can add multiple engines together to get more thrust. Um, right now, really, our sizing is limited to the. Um, you know, we use three D printers for some of the some of the printing of the engines and some of the geometries. And so really we're limited on how big 3D printers are, but mm-hmm. I think even that technology is, is changing and growing. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it scales very, very well, fortunately. It's interesting. 3D printing was an area where I was looking at a while back and it was like, you know, everyone was pushing the consumer DIY kind of agenda early days in the venture community around um, 3D printing. And that kind of just like hit a wall a little bit. But like when you see like, you know, commercial use cases like yours, I think that's just like it really opens the door for other opportunity from an investment perspective in some of the potential on 3D printing. Is that an area that you guys that you that, that excites you or that you utilize a lot in your in your oh. line of work? Um, 3D metal printing is literally what has kind of revolutionized, you know, aerospace technology because you can print geometries. There's, there's just are shapes and things you cannot do with traditional manufacturing, um, that 3D printing enables. Um, and so without that, I don't think we could actually be building the rocket engine that we're building and testing right now. Um, so it's one of that, but between that and then really high speed cameras and sensors, you know, because we're using a detonation, which is supersonic combustion, it happens at incredibly high speeds. You know, we need to be able to, you know, understand the physics of what's going on at at, at high speeds. And so those, you know, high speed sensors, high speed cameras, 3D printing are kind of some of the key technologies that we're standing upon that have allowed us to to kind of go to this next step. I was actually wondering, has, has the advancements over the past year in AI impacted your business in any way? Because, you know, that's we see that impacting almost every business we speak to in some way or form. I wonder if that impacts you guys in any way yet. 
Yeah, you know, I I wish I could say we were using it more than we are. I mean, I've I've used it to write some emails. I don't know yeah. that we've it, some of the some of the challenges is we are ITAR controlled or national traffic and arms regulations. So we have to be very careful with what information we put out um, because we you know and just because of the type of technology we're building. Yeah. Um, and so you know we've looked at ways. I think our software team is working on some stuff, but mm-hmm. um, I personally haven't used it as much as um, I think we probably should be. Yeah, yeah, I have uh, one final question on my end, but I'm wondering, you mentioned in a decade, it will be more commercial flights. Obviously, you're working on the drones right now. What are your major milestones over the next three to five, even a couple of years out that we should be on the lookout for as both investors and people following along on your journey? Yeah, you know, so really, it's high, high speed drone flights. And so it's, you know, our rocket engine flying on a drone at at Mach 3, Mach 4, Mach 5, just continuing to get faster and faster, um, and then growing to scaling to larger vehicles. You know, one of the great things about the engine is it's actually not very large. And so because of the size of it, you know, we can wrap a fairly small vehicle around it, which means we can get things flying fairly cheaply. Um, And so, you know, drone, you know, smaller scale drones and medium scale drones, and then, you know, commercial drones would really be, or not commercial drones, commercial um, passenger vehicles would really be our development path of, you know, what we're trying to get to. That's amazing. Yeah. Super cool. It's incredible. So we're, so we're so excited to, so, you know, continue to support you and, and, and kind of continue to follow your journey. It's just been a, you know, one of the more fantastic, exciting stories for us. Cause you know, you guys are really the vision that you have or the kind is really what are some of it relates to the inspiration that I had when starting this fund and starting the syndicate was, you know, I want to see people try, swinging for the fences, trying to do big things that that can really change the world and improve the way we live and the way we operate as society. And, you know, you guys fit that bill so well. So, um, you know, we're, we're rooting for you for the side for sure. Yeah, we'll certainly appreciate it. Thank, you know, appreciate the support. We, you know, I always joke, Andrew and I aren't billionaires. We're two engineers with a crazy idea um, and it takes capital partners. Like we can't, we can't do this alone. And so, you know, thank you for your continued support. And, you know, again, as I said, it's the adventure of a lifetime and there's nothing I would rather be doing right now than trying to chase this, chase this dream. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much, Sassy. And for everybody listening today, thank you so much for listening. As mentioned before, please make sure to like, follow, subscribe. Uh, This was sponsored by Alto and it makes it easy to invest in private deals. You could access their new marketplace at altoira.com forward slash marketplace. But Sassy, thanks again for coming on and really appreciate your time. You're welcome. This has been a Red Beard Ventures production.